Section 17 of The Letters of Mark Twain Complete. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by James K. White. The Letters of Mark Twain Complete by Mark Twain. Volume 3, Chapter 16. Letters, 1876 chiefly to w d howells literature and politics planning a play with bret hart the monday evening club of hartford was an association of most of the literary talent of that city and it included a number of very distinguished members the writers the editors the lawyers and the ministers of the gospel who composed it were more often than not men of national or international distinction there was but one paper at each meeting and it was likely to be a paper that would later find its way into some magazine naturally mark twain was one of its favorite members and his contributions never failed to arouse interest and discussion a mark twain night brought out every member in the next letter we find the first mention of one of his most memorable contributions a story of one of life's moral aspects the tale now included in his collected works is, for some reason, little read today. Yet the curious allegory, so vivid in its seeming reality, is well worth consideration. To W. D. Howells in Boston, Hartford, January 11, 76. My dear Howells, indeed we haven't forgotten the houses, nor scored up a grudge of any kind against them but the fact is i was under the doctor's hands for four weeks on a stretch and have been disabled from working for a week or so beside i thought i was well about ten days ago so i sent for a shorthand writer and dictated answers to a bushel or so of letters that had been accumulating during my illness getting everything shipshape and cleared up i went to work next day upon an atlantic article which ought to be worth twenty dollars per page which is the price they usually pay for my work, I believe, for although it is only seventy pages manuscript, less than two days' work, counting by bulk, I have spent three more days trimming, altering, and working at it. I shall put in one more day's polishing on it, and then read it before our club, which is to meet at our house Monday evening, the twenty-fourth instant. I think it will bring out considerable discussion among the gentlemen of the club, though the title of the article would not give them much notion of what is to follow this title being the facts concerning the recent carnival of crime in connecticut which reminds me that today's tribune says there will be a startling article in the current atlantic in which a being which is tangible but invisible will figure exactly the case with the sketch of mine which i am talking about however mine can lie unpublished a year or two as well as not though i wish that contributor of yours had not interfered with his coincidence of heroes but what i am coming at is this won't you and mrs howells come down saturday the twenty-second and remain to the club on monday night we always have a rattling good time at the club and we do want you to come ever so much will you now say you will mrs clemens and i are persuading ourselves that you twain will come 
my volume of sketches is doing very well considering the times received my quarterly statement today from bliss by which i perceive that twenty thousand copies have been sold or rather twenty thousand had been sold three weeks ago a lot more by this time no doubt i am on the sick list again and was day before yesterday but on the whole i am getting along yours ever mark howells wrote that he could not come down to the club meeting adding that sickness was quite out of character for mark twain and hardly fair on a man who had made so many other people feel well he closed by urging that bliss hurry out tom sawyer that boy is going to make a prodigious hit clemens answered to w d howells in boston hartford january eighteen seventy six my dear howells thanks and ever so many for the good opinion of tom sawyer williams has made about three hundred rattling pictures for it some of them very dainty poor devil what a genius he has and how he does murder it with rum he takes a book of mine and without suggestion from anybody builds no end of pictures just from his reading of it there was never a man in the world so grateful to another as i was to you day before yesterday when i sat down in still rather wretched health to set myself to the dreary and hateful task of making final revision of tom sawyer and discovered upon opening the package of manuscript that your pencil marks were scattered all along this was splendid and swept away all labor instead of reading the manuscript i simply hunted out the pencil marks and made the emendations which they suggested i reduced the boy battle to a curt paragraph i finally concluded to cut the sunday school speech down to the first two sentences leaving no suggestion of satire since the book is to be for boys and girls i tamed the various obscenities until i judged that they no longer carried offence so at a single sitting i began and finished a revision which i had supposed would occupy three or four days and leave me mentally and physically fagged out at the end i was careful not to inflict the manuscript upon you until i had thoroughly and painstakingly revised it therefore the only faults left were those that would discover themselves to others not me and these you had pointed out there was one expression which perhaps you overlooked when huck is complaining to tom of the rigorous system in vogue at the widows he says the servants harass him with all manner of compulsory decencies and he winds up saying and they comb me all to hell no exclamation point long ago when i read that to mrs clemens she made no comment another time i created occasion to read that chapter to her aunt and her mother both sensitive and loyal subjects of the kingdom of heaven so to speak and they let it pass i was glad for it was the most natural remark in the world for that boy to make and he had been allowed few privileges of speech in the book when i saw that you two had let it go without protest i was glad and afraid too afraid you hadn't observed it did you and did you question the propriety of it since the book is now professedly and confessedly a boys and girls book that darn word bothers me some nights 
but it never did until I had ceased to regard the volume as being for adults. Don't bother to answer now, for you've writing enough to do without allowing me to add to the burden, but tell me when you see me again, which we do hope will be next Saturday, or Sunday, or Monday. Couldn't you come now and mull over the alterations which you are going to make in your manuscript, and make them after you go back? Wouldn't it assist the work if you dropped out of harness and routine for a day or two, and have that sort of revivification which comes of a holiday forgetfulness of the workshop? I can always work after I've been to your house, and if you will come to mine now and hear the club toot their various horns over the exasperating metaphysical question which I mean to lay before them in the disguise of a literary extravaganza, it would just brace you up like a cordial. I feel sort of mean trying to persuade a man to put down a critical piece of work at a critical time, but yet I am honest in thinking it would not hurt the work nor impair your interest in it to come under the circumstances. Mrs. Clemens says maybe the houses could come Monday if they cannot come Saturday. Ask them. It is worth trying. Well, how's that? Could you? It would be splendid if you could. Drop me a postal card. I should have a twinge of conscience if I forced you to write a letter. I am honest about that. And if you find you can't make out to come, tell me that you bodies will come the next Saturday, if the thing is possible, and stay over Sunday. Yours ever, Mark. Howells, however, did not come to the club meeting, but promised to come soon when they could have a quiet time to themselves together. As to Huck's language, he declared, I'd have that swearing out in an instant. I suppose I didn't notice it because the locution was so familiar to my western sense, and so exactly the thing that Huck would say. Clemens changed the phrase to, They comb me all to thunder, and it stands today. The Carnival of Crime, having served its purpose at the club, found quick acceptance by Howells for the Atlantic. He was so pleased with it, in fact, that somewhat later he wrote, urging that its author allow it to be printed in a dainty book by Osgood, who made a specialty of fine publishing. Meantime, Howells had written his Atlantic notice of Tom Sawyer, and now enclosed Clemens a proof of it. We may judge from the reply that it was satisfactory. To W. D. Howells in Boston, April 3, 76. My dear Howells, it is a splendid notice and will embolden weak-kneed journalistic admirers to speak out and will modify or shut up the unfriendly. To fear God and dread the Sunday school exactly described that old feeling which I used to have, but I couldn't have formulated it. I want to enclose one of the illustrations in this letter if I do not forget it. Of course, the book is to be elaborately illustrated, and I think that many of the pictures are considerably above the American average, in conception, if not in execution. I do not re-enclose your review to you, for you have evidently read and corrected it, and so I judge you do not need it. About two days after the Atlantic issues, I mean to begin to send books to principal journals and magazines. I read the Carnival of Crime proof in New York when worn and witless, 
and so left some things unamended which i might possibly have altered had i been at home for instance i shall always address you in your own snivelling drawl baby i saw that you objected to something there but i did not understand what was it that it was too personal should the language be altered or the hyphens taken out won't you please fix it the way it ought to be altering the language as you choose only making it bitter and contemptuous deuced was not strong enough so i met you halfway with devilish mrs clemens has returned from new york with dreadful sore throat and bones racked with rheumatism she keeps her bed aloha nui as the kanakas say mark henry irving once said to mark twain you made a mistake by not adopting the stage as a profession you would have made even a greater actor than a writer mark twain would have made an actor certainly but not a very tractable one his appearance in hartford in the loan of a lover was a distinguished event and his success complete though he made so many extemporaneous improvements on the lines of thick-headed peter spuck that he kept the other actors guessing as to their cues and nearly broke up the performance it was of course an amateur benefit though augustine daly promptly wrote offering to put it on for a long run the skeleton novelette mentioned in the next letter refers to a plan concocted by howells and clemens by which each of twelve authors was to write a story using the same plot blindfolded as to what the others had written it was a regular mark twain notion and it is hard today to imagine howells continued enthusiasm in it neither he nor clemens gave up the idea for a long time it appears in their letters again and again though perhaps it was just as well for literature that it was never carried out to w d howells in boston april twenty two eighteen seventy six my dear howells you'll see per enclosed slip that i appear for the first time on the stage next wednesday you and mrs h come down and you shall skip in free i wrote my skeleton novelette yesterday and today it will make a little under twelve pages please tell aldrich i have got a photographer engaged and tri-weekly issue is about to begin show him the canvas and specimens and beseech him to subscribe ever yours s l c in his next letter mark twain explains why tom sawyer is not to appear as soon as planned the reference to the literary nightmare refers to the punch conductor punch with care sketch which had recently appeared in the atlantic many other versifiers had had their turn at horse-car poetry and now a publisher was anxious to collect it in a book provided he could use the atlantic sketch clemens does not tell us here the nature of carleton's insult forgiveness of which he was not yet qualified to grant but there are at least two stories about it or two halves of the same incident as related afterward by clemens and canton Clemens said that when he took the Jumping Frog book to Carlton in 1867, the latter, pointing to his stock, said, rather scornfully, Books? I don't want your book. My shelves are full of books now. Though the reader may remember that it was Carlton himself who had given the frog story to the Saturday press 
and had seen it become famous carlton's half of the story was that he did not accept mark twain's book because the author looked so disreputable long afterward when the two men met in europe the publisher said to the now rich and famous author mr clemens my one claim on immortality is that i declined your first book to w d howells in boston hartford april twenty five eighteen seventy six my dear howells thanks for giving me the place of honor bliss made a failure in the matter of getting tom sawyer ready on time the engravers assisting as usual i went down to see how much of a delay there was going to be and found that the man had not even put a canvasser on or issued an advertisement yet in fact that the electrotypes would not all be done for a month but of course the main fact was that no canvassing had been done because a subscription harvest is before publication not after when people have discovered how bad one's book is well yesterday i put in the current an editorial paragraph stating that tom sawyer is ready to issue but publication is put off in order to secure english copyright by simultaneous publication there and here the english edition is unavoidably delayed you see part of that is true very well when i observed that my sketches had dropped from a sale of six or seven thousand a month down to twelve hundred a month i said this ain't no time to be publishing books therefore let tom lie still till autumn mr bliss and make a holiday book of him to beguile the young people withal i shall print items occasionally still further delaying tom till i ease him down to autumn without shock to the waiting world as to that literary nightmare proposition i am obliged to withhold consent for what seems a good reason to wit a single page of horse-car poetry is all that the average reader can stand without nausea now to stack together all of it that has been written and then add it to my article would be to enrage and disgust each and every reader and win the deathless enmity of the lot even if that reason were insufficient there would still be a sufficient reason left in the fact that mr carlton seems to be the publisher of the magazine in which it is proposed to publish this horse-car matter carlton insulted me in february eighteen sixty seven and so when the day arrives that sees me doing him a civility i shall feel that i am ready for paradise since my list of possible and impossible forgivenesses will then be complete mrs clemens says my version of the blindfold novelette a murder and a marriage is good pretty strong language for her the fieldses are coming down to the play tomorrow and they promise to get you and mrs howells to come too but i hope you'll do nothing of the kind if it will inconvenience you for i'm not going to play either strikingly bad enough or well enough to make the journey pay you my wife and i think of going to boston may seventh to see anna dickinson's debut on the eighth if i find we can go i'll try to get a stage box and then you and mrs howells must come to parker's and go with us to the crucifixion is that spelt right somehow it doesn't look right with our very kindest regards to the whole family yours ever mark the mention of anna dickinson at the end of this letter 
recalls a prominent reformer and lecturer of the Civil War period. She had begun her crusades against temperance and slavery in 1857, when she was but fifteen years old, when her success as a speaker had been immediate and extraordinary. Now, in this later period, at the age of thirty-four, she aspired to the stage, unfortunately for her, as her gifts lay elsewhere. Clemens and Howells knew Miss Dickinson, and were anxious for the success which they hardly dared hope for. Clemens arranged a box party. To W. D. Howells in Boston, May 4, 76. My dear Howells, I shall reach Boston on Monday the 8th, either at 4.30 p.m. or 6 p.m., which is best, and go straight to Parker's. If you and Mrs. Howells cannot be there by half-past four, I'll not plan to arrive till the later train time, six, because I don't want to be there alone, even a minute. Still, Joe Twitchell will doubtless go with me. Forgot that. He is going to try hard to. Mrs. Clemens has given up going because Susie is just recovering from about the savagest assault of diphtheria a child ever did recover from and therefore will not be entirely her health itself again by the eighth. Would you and Mrs. Howells like to invite Mr. and Mrs. Aldrich? I have a large proscenium box, plenty of room. Use your own pleasure about it. I mainly, that is honest, suggested because I am seeking to make matters pleasant for you and Mrs. Howells. I invited Twitcher because I thought I knew you'd like that. I want you to fix it so that you and the madam can remain in Boston all night, for I leave next day and we can't have a talk otherwise. I am going to get two rooms in a parlor, and would like to know what you decide about the Aldriches, so as to know whether to apply for an additional bedroom or not. Don't dine that evening, for I shall arrive dinnerless and need your help. I'll bring my blindfold novelette but shan't exhibit it unless you exhibit yours. You would simply go to work and write a novelette that would make mine sick, because you would know all about where my weak points lay. No, sir, I'm one of these old wary birds. Don't bother to write a letter. Three lines on a postal card is all that I can permit from a busy man. Yours ever, Mark. P.S. Good. You'll not have to feel any call to mention that debut in the Atlantic. They've made me pay the grand cash for my box, a thing which most managers would be too worldly wise to do with journalistic folks. But I'm most honestly glad, for I'd rather pay three prices any time than to have my tongue half paralyzed with a deadhead ticket. Hang that Anna Dickinson. A body can never depend upon her debuts. She has made five or six false starts already. If she fails to debut this time, I will never bet on her again. In his book, My Mark Twain, Howells refers to the tragedy of Miss Dickinson's appearance. She was the author of numerous plays, some of which were successful, but her career as an actress was never brilliant. At Elmira that summer, the Clemenses heard from their good friend Dr. Brown of Edinburgh, and sent eager replies. To Dr. John Brown in Edinburgh, Elmira, New York, U.S., 
june twenty two eighteen seventy six dear friend the doctor it was a perfect delight to see the well-known handwriting again but we so grieve to know that you are feeling miserable it must not last it cannot last the regal summer is come and it will smile you into high good cheer it will charm away your pains it will banish your distresses i wish you were here to spend the summer with us we are perched on a hilltop that overlooks a little world of green valleys shining rivers sumptuous forests and billowy uplands veiled in the haze of distance we have no neighbors it is the quietest of all quiet places and we are hermits that eschew caves and live in the sun doctor if you'd only come i will carry your letter to mrs c now and there will be a glad woman i tell you and she shall find one of those pictures to put in this for mrs barclay's and if there isn't one here we'll send right away to hartford and get one come over dr john and bring the barclay's the nicholson's and the browns one and all affectionately samuel l clemens from may until august no letters appear to have passed between clemens and howells the latter finally wrote complaining of the lack of news he was in the midst of campaign activities he said writing a life of hayes and gaily added you know i wrote the life of lincoln which elected him he further reported a comedy he had completed and gave clemens a general stirring up as to his own work mark twain in his hillside study was busy enough summer was his time for work and he had tried his hand in various directions his mention of huck finn in his reply to howells is interesting in that it shows the measure of his enthusiasm or lack of it as a gauge of his ultimate achievement to w d howells in boston elmira august nine eighteen seventy six my dear howells I was just about to write you when your letter came, and not one of those obscene postal cards either, but reverently upon paper. I shall read that biography, though the letter of acceptance was amply sufficient to corral my vote without any further knowledge of the man, which reminds me that a campaign club in Jersey City wrote a few days ago and invited me to be present at the raising of a Tilden and Hendricks flag there, and to take the stand and give them some counsel well i could not go but gave them counsel and advice by letter and in the kindliest terms as to the raising of the flag advised them not to raise it get your book out quick for this is a momentous time if tilden is elected i think the entire country will go pretty straight to mrs howells bad place i am infringing on your patent I started a record of our children's sayings last night, which reminds me that last week I sent down and got Susie a vast pair of shoes of a most villainous pattern, for I discovered that her feet were being twisted and cramped out of shape by a smaller and prettier article. She did not complain, but looked degraded and injured. At night her mamma gave her the usual admonition when she was about to say her prayers, to wit, Now, Susie, think about god mama i can't with those shoes the farm is perfectly delightful this season 
it is as quiet and peaceful as a south sea island some of the sunsets which we have witnessed from this commanding eminence were marvelous one evening a rainbow spanned an entire range of hills with its mighty arch and from a black hub resting upon the hilltop in the exact center black rays diverged upward in perfect regularity to the rainbow's arch and created a very strongly defined and altogether the most majestic magnificent and startling half-sunk wagon-wheel you can imagine after that a world of tumbling and prodigious clouds came drifting up out of the west and took to themselves a wonderfully rich and brilliant green color the decided green of new spring foliage close by them we saw the intense blue of the skies through rents in the cloud rack and away off in another quarter were drifting clouds of a delicate pink color in one place hung a pile of dense black clouds like compacted pitch smoke and the stupendous wagon wheel was still in the supremacy of its unspeakable grandeur so you see the colors present in the sky at once and the same time were blue green pink black and the vari-colored splendors of the rainbow all strong and decided colors too i don't know whether this weird and astounding spectacle most suggested heaven or hell the wonder with its constant stately and always surprising changes lasted upwards of two hours and we all stood on the top of the hill by my study till the final miracle was complete and the greatest day ended that we ever saw our farmer who was a grave man watched that spectacle to the end and then observed that it was damn funny the double-barreled novel lies torpid i found i could not go on with it the chapters i had written were still too new and familiar to me i may take it up next winter but cannot tell yet i waited and waited to see if my interest in it would not revive but gave it up a month ago and began another boy's book more to be at work than anything else i have written four hundred pages on it therefore it is very nearly half done it is huck finn's autobiography i like it only tolerably well as far as i have got and may possibly pigeonhole or burn the manuscript when it is done so the comedy is done and with a fair degree of satisfaction that rejoices me and makes me mad too for i can't plan a comedy and what have you done that god should be so good to you i have racked myself bald-headed trying to plan a comedy harness for some promising characters of mine to work in and had to give it up it is a noble lot of blooded stock and worth no end of money but they must stand in the stable and be profitless i want to be present when the comedy is produced and help enjoy the success warner's book is mighty readable i think love to yous yours ever mark howells promptly wrote again urging him to enter the campaign for hayes there is not another man in this country he said who could help him so much as you the farce which clemens refers to in his reply was the parlor car which seems to have been about the first venture of Howells in that field. To W. D. Howells in Boston, Elmira, August twenty-three, eighteen seventy-six. My dear Howells, I am glad you think I could do Hayes any good, 
for I have been wanting to write a letter or make a speech to that end. I'll be careful not to do either, however, until the opportunity comes in a natural, justifiable, and unlugged way, and shall not then do anything unless I have got it all digested and worded just right, in which case I might do some good, in any other I should do harm. When a humorist ventures upon the grave concerns of life, he must do his job better than another man, or he works harm to his cause. The farce is wonderfully bright and delicious, and must make a hit. You read it to me, and it was mighty good. I read it last night, and it was better. I read it aloud to the household this morning, and it was better than ever. So it would be worth going a long way to see it well played for without any question an actor of genius always adds a subtle something to any man's work that none but the writer knew was there before, even if he knew it. I have heard of readers convulsing audiences with my Aurelia's unfortunate young man. If there is anything really funny in the piece, the author is not aware of it. All right. Advertise me for the new volume. I send you herewith a sketch which will make three pages of the Atlantic. If you like it and accept it, you should get it into the December number, because I shall read it in public in Boston the 13th and 14th of November. If it went in a month earlier, it would be too old for me to read except as old matter, and if it went in a month later, it would be too old for the Atlantic. Do you see? And if you wish to use it, will you set it up now? and send me three proofs, one to correct for Atlantic, one to send to Temple Bar, shall I tell them to use it not earlier than their November number, and one to use in practicing for my Boston readings. We must get up a less elaborate and a much better skeleton plan for the blindfold novels, and make a success of that idea. David Gray spent Sunday here, and said we could but little comprehend what a rattling stir that thing would make in the country. He thought it would make a mighty strike. So do I. But with only eight pages to tell the tale in, the plot must be less elaborate, doubtless. What do you think? When we exchange visits, I'll show you an unfinished sketch of Elizabeth's time which shook David Gray's system up pretty exhaustively. Yours ever, Mark. The manuscript sketch mentioned in the foregoing letter was The Canvasser's Tale, later included in the volume Tom Sawyer Abroad and Other Stories. It is far from being Mark Twain's best work, but was accepted and printed in The Atlantic. David Gray was an able journalist and editor whom Mark Twain had known in Buffalo. The sketch of Elizabeth's time is a brilliant piece of writing an imaginary record of conversation and court manners in the good old days of free speech and performance phrased in the language of the period. Gray, John Hay, Twitchell, and others who had a chance to see it thought highly of it, and Hay had it set in type and a few proofs taken for private circulation. Some years afterward, a West Point officer had a special font of antique type made for it and printed a hundred copies but the present-day reader would hardly be willing to include fireside conversation in the time of Queen Elizabeth in Mark Twain's collected works. Clemens was a strong Republican in those days, as his letters of this period show. His mention of the caves in the next is another reference to the canvasser's tale. 
to w d howells in boston september fourteenth eighteen seventy six my dear howells yes the collection of caves was the origin of it i changed it to echoes because these being invisible and intangible constituted a still more absurd species of property and yet a man could really own an echo and sell it too for a high figure such an echo as that at the villa seminetti two miles from milan for instance my first purpose was to have the man make a collection of caves and afterwards of echoes but perceived that the element of absurdity and impracticability was so nearly identical as to amount to a repetition of an idea i will not and do not believe that there is a possibility of hayes's defeat but i want the victory to be sweeping it seems odd to find myself interested in an election i never was before and i can't seem to get over my repugnance to reading or thinking about politics yet but in truth i care little about any party's politics the man behind it is the important thing you may well know that mrs clemens liked the parlor car enjoyed it ever so much and was indignant at you all through and kept exploding into rages at you for pretending that such a woman ever existed closing each and every explosion with but it is just what such a woman would do it is just what such a woman would say they all voted the parlor car perfection except me i said they wouldn't have been allowed to court and quarrel there so long uninterrupted but at each critical moment the odious train-boy would come in and pile foul literature all over them four or five inches deep and the lover would turn his head aside and curse and presently that train-boy would be back again as on all those western roads to take up the literature and leave prize candy of course the thing is perfect in the magazine without the train boy but i was thinking of the stage and the groundlings if the dainty touches went over their heads the train boy and other possible interruptions would fetch them every time would it mar the flow of the thing too much to insert that devil i thought it over a couple of hours and concluded it wouldn't and that he ought to be in for the sake of the groundlings and to get new copyright on the piece and it seemed to me that now that the fourth act is so successfully written why not go ahead and write the three preceding acts and then after it is finished let me put into it a low comedy character the girl's or the lover's father or uncle and gobble a big pecuniary interest in your work for myself do not let this generous proposition disturb your rest but do write the other three acts and then it will be valuable to managers and don't go and sell it to anybody like hart but keep it for yourself hart's play can be doctored till it will be entirely acceptable and then it will clear a great sum every year i am out of all patience with hart for selling it the play entertained me hugely even in its present crude state love to y'all yours ever mark Following the seller's success, Clemens had made many attempts at dramatic writing. Such undertakings had uniformly failed, but he had always been willing to try again. In the next letter we get the beginning of what proved his first and last direct literary association, that is to say, collaboration, 
with Bret Hart. Clemens had great admiration for Hart's ability and believed that between them they could turn out a successful play. Whether or not this belief was justified will appear later. Howell's biography of Hayes, meanwhile, had not gone well. He reported that only 2,000 copies had been sold in what was now the height of the campaign. "'There's success for you,' he said. "'It makes me despair of the Republic.' Clemens, on his part, had made a speech for Hayes that Howells declared had put civil service reform in a nutshell. He added, You are the only Republican orator quoted without distinction of party by all the newspapers. To W. D. Howells in Boston. Hartford, October 11, 1876. My dear Howells, this is a secret to be known to nobody but you. Of course, I comprehend that Mrs. Howells is part of you. That Bret Hart came up here the other day and asked me to help him write a play and divide the swag, and I agreed. I am to put in Scotty Briggs, see Buck Fanshawe's funeral in Roughing It. And he is to put in a Chinaman, a wonderfully funny creature, as Bret presents him, for five minutes in his Sandy Bar play. This Chinaman is to be the character of the play, and both of us will work on him and develop him. Bread is to draw a plot, and I am to do the same. We shall use the best of the two, or gouge from both and build a third. My plot is built. Finished it yesterday. Six days' work, eight or nine hours a day, and has nearly killed me. Now, the favor I ask of you is that you will have the words Ah Sin, a drama, printed in the middle of a notepaper page and send the same to me with Bill. We don't want anybody to know that we are building this play. I can't get this title page printed here without having to lie so much that the thought of it is disagreeable to one reared as I have been, and yet the title of the play must be printed. The rest of the application for copyright is allowable in penmanship. We have got the very best gang of servants in America now. When George first came, he was one of the most religious of men. He had but one fault, young George Washington's. But I have trained him, and now it fairly breaks Mrs. Clemens' heart to hear George stand at that front door and lie to the unwelcome visitor. But your time is valuable. I must not dwell upon these things. I'll ask Warner and Hart if they'll do blindfold novelettes. Sometime I'll simplify that plot. All it needs is that the hanging and the marriage shall not be appointed for the same day. I got over that difficulty, but it required too much manuscript to reconcile the thing, so the movement of the story was clogged. I came near agreeing to make political speeches with our candidate for governor the 16th and 23rd instant, but I had to give up the idea, for Hart and I will be here at work then. Yours ever, Mark. Mark Twain was writing few letters these days to anyone but Howells, yet in November he sent one to an old friend of his youth, Burrow, the literary chairmaker who had roomed with him in the days when he had been setting type for the St. Louis Evening News. To Mr. Burrow of St. Louis, Hartford, November 1, 1876. My dear Burroughs, 
As you describe me, I can picture myself as I was twenty years ago. The portrait is correct. You think I've grown some. Upon my word there was room for it. You have described a callow fool, a self-sufficient ass, a mere human tumble-bug, imagining that he is remodeling the world and is entirely capable of doing it right. Ignorance, intolerance, egotism, self-assertion, opaque perception, dense and pitiful chuckle-headedness, and an almost pathetic unconsciousness of it all. That is what I was at nineteen and twenty, and that is what the average Southerner is at sixty today. Northerners, too, of a certain grade. It is of children like this that voters are made, and such is the primal source of our government. A man hardly knows whether to swear or cry over it. I think I comprehend the position there. Perfect freedom to vote just as you choose, provided you choose to vote as other people think. Social ostracism otherwise. The same thing exists here, among the Irish. An Irish Republican is a pariah among his people. Yet that race finds fault with the same spirit in no-nothingism. Fortunately, a good deal of experience of men enabled me to choose my residence wisely. I live in the freest corner of the country. There are no social disabilities between me and my democratic personal friends. We break the bread and eat the salt of hospitality freely together and never dream of such a thing as offering impertinent interference in each other's political opinions. Don't you ever come to New York again and not run up here to see me? I suppose we were away for the summer when you were east, but no matter, you could have telegraphed and found out. We were at Elmira, New York, and right on your road, and could have given you a good time if you had allowed us the chance. Yes, Will Bowen and I have exchanged letters now and then for several years, but I suspect that I made him mad with my last, shortly after you saw him in St. Louis, I judge. There is one thing which I can't stand and won't stand from many people. That is, sham sentimentality. The kind a schoolgirl puts into a graduating composition. The sort that makes up the original poetry column of a country newspaper. The rot that deals in the happy days of yore. The sweet yet melancholy past, with its blighted hopes and its vanished dreams and all that sort of drivel wills were always of this stamp i stood it years when i get a letter like that from a grown man and he a widower with a family it gives me the stomach ache and i just told will bowen so last summer i told him to stop being sixteen at forty told him to stop drooling about the sweet yet melancholy past and take a pill I said there was but one solitary thing about the past worth remembering, and that was the fact that it is the past. Can't be restored. Well, I exaggerated some of these truths a little, but only a little. But my idea was to kill his sham sentimentality once and forever, and so make a good fellow of him again. I went to the unheard of trouble of rewriting the letter and saying the same harsh thing softly so as to sugarcoat the anguish and make it a little more endurable 
and I asked him to write and thank me honestly for doing him the best and kindliest favor that any friend ever had done him. But he hasn't done it yet. Maybe he will sometime. I am grateful to God that I got that letter off before he was married. I get that news from you. Elsie would just have slobbered all over me and drowned me when that event happened. I enclose photograph for the young ladies. I will remark that I do not wear seal skin for grandeur, but because I found, when I used to lecture in the winter, that nothing else was able to keep a man warm sometimes in these high latitudes. I wish you had sent pictures of yourself and family. I'll trade picture for picture with you, straight through, if you are commercially inclined. Your old friend Samuel L. Clemens End of section 17 recording by James K. White Chula Vista